0: Lovely, let's read from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present... I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I have written to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you.
1: And I wonder what you were thinking as that was read out to us. Um, Pretty hard-hitting words there and some confusing words as well. So let's start uh, by asking God to help us as we spend time looking at this passage together this evening. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it and that it is good and true. And so, Lord, as we come to a passage like this, This evening, which is challenging and can be confusing and hard-hitting, help us to understand what it is you want to say to us and help us to trust it and to trust that it is good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, I was once told that people find it two to three times harder or two to three times more likely to be motivated not to change than to change. Two to three times more likely to be motivated not to change than to change. I wonder if you can relate to that, whether you're someone who doesn't really like change in your life. Often we can want to see change around us, and so we look at the world around us, culture around us, we desire to see that change around us, Or maybe we want to see change in the people around us. We think of people in the office or at college or maybe even at home that we wish would change. But what if it was us that had to change? How would we feel then? I've heard it said that Jesus accepts us as we are, but doesn't leave us as we are. Jesus accepts us as we are, but doesn't leave us as we are. What that sentence means is that the gospel of good news, the gospel of Christianity, is for all people. It means every single person is welcome. Whoever they are, whatever their background is, whatever they've been up to, Jesus accepts you as you are. But he doesn't leave you as you are. Because Jesus is in the business of change. Jesus wants to see change. And so Jesus is in the business of changing you, of making you more like him. And that is what holiness is, of being changed, of being set apart, of being different from the world around us. And so Jesus cares about you, Jesus cares about your holiness, and Jesus cares about seeing change in your life. I wonder how that makes you feel. We've come to a change in the section in 1 Corinthians. Up to now, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 4 was the opening section of the letter where Paul writes to this church in Corinth and he's concerned about them because the Christians there, they think they're more spiritual than they actually are. They think they are more healthy than they actually are. They think they're wise and they think they're powerful, but they're looking in the wrong places for that wisdom and strength. And so Paul says to them, stop looking to the world, you need to look to the so-called weakness and foolishness of the gospel, because in that, that is real strength and wisdom. And so as a result, Paul challenges them and says, look, you're not as spiritual or mature as you think you are. And now as we move to a new section from chapter 5 onwards, Paul addresses specific issues that he's heard that the Corinthian church are struggling with issues or areas where the the Corinthian Christians think that they're actually pretty spiritual in, they're pretty mature in, and yet Paul wants to show them that actually they've got it wrong. You see, Paul wants them to be a spiritually growing church, Paul wants them to be a church that is seeing change, Paul wants them to be a growing in holiness church. And so in this section this evening, we see two areas of concern that Paul has as he longs to see them grow and change. First, we see Paul has a right concern for an individual's holiness. And then secondly, we see Paul has a right concern for the church's holiness. So first then, a right concern for the individual's holiness. Paul writes to the Christians there to to address a specific issue. Verse 1. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. There's a man in the church who's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. And and the phrase that Paul uses implies that this is an ongoing relationship. It's not just a one-off thing, but it's an ongoing relationship of which the man thinks it's all okay. And Paul writes to them to say, no, it's not okay. But Paul writes not just to address the specific issue, but he also wants to address the church's response to the issue. Verse 2, have a look down. And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit, and I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I was present. You see, there's a case of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, it's, it's any sexual activity that is outside God's plan, God's good plan for sexual activity. It's any kind of sexual activity that is extramarital sexual sin. And Paul is horrified that it's happening, but he's equally horrified at the response the church has had to it. He's horrified that it's being accepted. And and not just accepted. Do you see how he starts verse 2? He's horrified that they're actually proud of it. It's almost as if they're proud of their ability to be able to accommodate this kind of relationship in the church. It seems as if the Corinthian church, almost in their puffed-up spirituality, their freedom that they know and enjoy in the Spirit, that they go, here is an example of our, our Christian freedom, our Christian liberty. We have a freedom in Christ to just do what we want as if they're saying to the world around them, hey, hey, look how progressive we are as a church. Now, it may be easy to, to think how we might see this in churches today, where people think there are just outdated values on sex, and so we need to get up to date and match the culture and society around us. But before you go there, this is worse, verse 1. This is something that the pagans wouldn't even entertain. This is something the world around the church, the society, the culture around the church, they wouldn't agree with. And that is saying something for sexually promiscuous city of Corinth. Paul cannot believe that he's had report that this is happening in the church. But almost more than that, he cannot believe that this is being accepted by the church the response of the church. And so it's striking that in our passage, Paul actually spends more time addressing the response by the church than he does the sin itself. He says, look, the sin shouldn't be happening, but let me tell you how you should be responding to it. Rather than being proud, you should have been grieving, verse 2. There should have been mourning that this is happening in the church, showing a, a deep anguish at this sin. And so you should have looked to have dealt with the issue. As you'll probably be aware, we seem to be living in an increasingly permissive society, a yes culture. I can remember one time overhearing a parent saying that it would be wrong to ever say no to their child, that it would just be mean, it would be unfair to say no. Now, look, I'm I'm far from a perfect parent. I'm, I'm far from an expert, in parenthood, but, but if I was to never say no to Lily, she would end up having spoonfuls of peanut butter and, and mini cheddars for every single meal, whilst watching um, Mr. Tumble on TV all day every day, whilst wearing her swimming costume and wellies. Now for some of you, you might be attracted by that kind of, kind of day, but it's not that much fun. But it's not just kids, is it? It's not just little kids or slightly bigger kids. It just extends across the whole of society. We live in a world that doesn't want to say no. We live in a world that says you shouldn't be saying no to me. If it feels good, do it, we're told. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? That was true in the city of Corinth, and it sadly seems true in the world today. And the worry is that today this this kind of permissive culture seeps into our church. We never say no. And that's what happened in the city of Corinth. This culture seeped into the church. And worse than that, it was almost given off as a kind of super spirituality. Look, we can do anything. And Paul says, no, don't just say yes to everything. In fact, that isn't loving. Say no. You, you need to deal with it. And in fact, four times in our passage, four times, Paul tells the Corinthians how they should be dealing with it. Verse two, verse, seven, uh, verse two, verse five, verse seven and verse 13. Have a look at verse five as an example of that. Paul says, "Hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed, and his spirit saved." On the day of the Lord. I don't know what you think or how you feel when that, wo- that verse is read out. It, it, it sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? I mean, what is going on in a verse like that? Look, Paul, Paul doesn't, isn't saying to, to kind of hand this man over to Satan so that he's lost forever to Satan. And he's not saying in this verse any kind of uh, call for any kind of physical harm to this person. But rather, he's, he's speaking about Satan's realm. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about the devil being the spirit of the air. And, and so the world around us being Satan's realm. And so he says, look, you need to put this man out of your fellowship. Out of the, the gatherings that you have as a church. Out of the communion gatherings that you have. And so into Satan's realm." And the intention is that, 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 that his sinful nature, the, the sinful part of him, well, that might be dealt with. That will be destroyed. So that, in the end, he is in fact saved. So the intention here is the man's salvation. It's almost as if as he goes out, he, he kind of comes to his senses and goes, what am I doing? This isn't worth it. This life I lived, it, it, it doesn't give me the life I want. It doesn't fulfill me. And, and so realizes that and, and repents and turns away from that way of living and comes back to Jesus Christ. Paul is serious about sin. Paul is serious about purity. Paul is serious about holiness, that set-apartness to be different to the world, to become more like Jesus Christ. And so, there is a big challenge here not to tolerate sin in the individual, both in ourselves and those around us, to have a concern for an individual's holiness. But it's not just the individual. Throughout 1 Corinthians, as Paul writes to the church, he writes to the church. He recognizes that the Christian faith isn't a faith to be lived alone, but as a Christian, you are part of something bigger. And so as Paul is concerned with an individual's spiritual health, an individual's purity, an individual's holiness, it is because it has a direct impact on the whole church. And so in the rest of the passage, Paul shows a right concern for the church's holiness. And he starts by showing that through an illustration, verse 6. Have a look down. He says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul speaks a language into the Corinthian church that they would understand. Now, I don't know if we've got many home bakers here. Uh, Maybe this uh, would speak more, well, certainly speak to me, uh, speak more to you. In 1972, uh, Cadbury's had to get rid of 25 million chocolate Easter eggs. Now, that is a tragedy because they found out that the yeast in the cream filling uh, expanded once the eggs had left the factory and caused all the eggshells to break. And so, and so you saw the yeast that affected the whole batch. Paul's saying, look, just as yeast spreads and grows and affects the whole batch of dough, so sin can spread and grow and affect the whole church. If nothing's done about sin, the impression is that, hey, it's all right. It doesn't matter. And so other people may follow And yet Paul doesn't just simply use this as an illustration that they get, like I get chocolate. It actually has a deeper meaning. And and so as Paul mentions yeast and and dough and and mentions Jesus as the Passover lamb, the, the minds of the Corinthian Christians will be taken all the way back to Exodus and the Passover and the need for the Israelites to remove the yeast from their bread before the lamb is sacrificed as a way of preparation for what's coming. And so it points forward to Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, who is sacrificed on our behalf, who washes us clean from our sin. And so Paul is saying, because the sacrifice has happened, because Jesus has died for you, so be different, so be changed, verse eight. You're no longer like the old bread, with malice and wickedness. You're new bread, with sincerity and truth, so be different, be changed. And Paul almost reaffirms this in the rest of the passage in verses 9 to 12. It's interesting, in verse 9, we actually learn that that whilst this is our 1 Corinthians, there has been a previous letter to the church in Corinth. And in this previous letter, it's obvious that Paul has already spoken about being different sexually, being different to the way the world lives, and so being careful about associating with those who are sexually immoral. And yet the Corinthians read that, and they took that the wrong way. They thought Paul was saying, look, have nothing to do with anyone who's out there in the world who is sexually immoral. And Paul goes, no, no, no. You realize if you put that into practice then you'll not interact with anyone in the world. That can't be the case. No, it doesn't mean have nothing to do with anyone out there. No, it's about us in here. It's anyone who is inside the church, who, verse 11, claims to be following Jesus Christ, but is sexually immoral or greedy, is an idolater or a slanderer, is a drunkard or a swindler, With such a man do not even eat. Here Paul adds to the list. He's been talking about sexual immorality and now he adds greed and swindlers, those who who covet and want other people's belongings but don't just want it, act on that desire to get hold of it. He talks about slanderers, those who abuse verbally. He talks about the kind of person who's regularly given over to drunkenness. And he says, don't associate with them. Paul is serious about sin because he's serious about holiness and change, both in the individual and in the church. And look, I don't think Paul is speaking about every single instance of sin and how we should be responding to every single time someone sins. He can't be saying that because he, he knows that, that we're all fallen people who, who, who are prone to sin. And so if that was the case, we wouldn't associate with anyone here. Now, here seems to be a case of, of persistent and unrepentant sin. A man who is persistent in this relationship, and he does not think it's wrong. He's unrepentant of it. And so whilst he says he believes in Jesus Christ, is persistent in living in a way that is contrary to God's word and contrary to God's way of living. And so Paul says, look, it is right and it is loving to challenge them for the good of of the individual, their own good, but also for the good of the whole church. And so if they are unrepentant, if they persist in it, then it may be the right thing, the, the loving thing, to, to not consider them part of the church family, of the fellowship of believers. What might that look like? Well, it might be to, to not invite them to take part in communion, a meal for those who, who are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and are repentant of their sin. or or to not invite people to have any kind of position of leadership or or teaching or authority within the church. Paul says here, a right judging is needed. If you've been with us previously, you'll you'll know and you'll maybe think back now to the previous chapter where, where Paul condemns a judgmentalism of the Corinthian Christians. He he says, no, you shouldn't have a kind of self-righteous judgmentalism, a self-righteous judgmentalism that puffs yourself up and looks down the nose of other people and just finds the faults in them, of which the Corinthian Christians were guilty of. But there is a right judging between right and wrong for, for the good of the individual, including ourselves, and for the good of the church. Jesus accepts you as you are, but he does not leave you as you are. Jesus is in the business of change, and that is a good thing. And it's a good change that we should all desire. But as is often the case with change, it can be a hard thing. And so there is a challenge for us that... But as we hear these words, hard-hitting words, will we take the time to examine ourselves? Is, is my own change, is my own holiness a great priority for me, a concern for me? Am I concerned with my church's holiness and change? It's right to examine ourselves. What, what sins may I be tempted in my own life, to to kind of just brush over and say, ah, it's it's okay, to justify and and excuse away. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, I get get angry, I, I lose my temper, but look, if you had to deal with these people, you'd get angry too. It's their fault, not really mine. And as a church together... What what sins may we as a church be tempted to just brush over, to kind of look the other way? Paul gives us examples of, of what these could be. Any kind of sexual sin. Or greed, wanting what other people have, or wanting what we don't have. How we use our words with one another, or behind one another's back. Any kind of idolatry in our own hearts, or as a church. And so as as Jesus wants to change his church, as Jesus wants us to grow as a church, how how might we as a church here at St. Mary's, how might we cultivate an environment where even though these are hard conversations, we might recognize that these are good, healthy conversations how might we have, a, have an environment here where we can have these kind of conversations so that we might want and be able to help each other change? Why don't we take a few moments on your notice sheet if you've been taking notes or if you haven't been taking notes. At the bottom, there's a couple of questions. Um, why don't we take a couple of minutes now um, just quietly on our own just to think those things through and to reflect on them and then in a couple of minutes, I'll pray for us and wrap us up. So why don't we take just a minute or so just to think those things through. Father God, thank you for your word. And even though a passage like this is hard-hitting and challenging, Lord, help us to trust that it is a good thing for us. Thank you that you are in the business of changing us to make us more like Jesus Christ. And so will you help us to examine ourselves and help us as a church to be aware of any areas where we might let sin fester and so be quick to want to see change. In Jesus' name. Amen.